Well, before we get into prayer this morning, I do want to um, pray. I was informed that by Ryan Hobson that Be- our sister Betty May is not feeling well this morning. She's pretty sick. So we're going we're gonna to pray for her, and I'm also going to pray for um, the preaching this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we first of all lift up our, our sister Betty May to you and ask that you would draw near to her and comfort her. We thank you that you have carried her down to old age and gray hairs that you have continued to be her God, and we pray that you would continue to sustain her and, and, and bless her and help her um, in, these, in these more feeble days. We pray that you would continue to be her God and continue to uphold her, and to whatever degree you're pleased to extend her life and grant her more health, we pray that you would do just that. And we pray all this through Christ. We also ask for your blessing on our time of preaching and hearing and applying of your word in these moments now before us. We pray that you would fill me with your spirit, prevent my mouth from saying anything untrue or unhelpful, fill all of our minds with your truth in these moments. May this, may this time together not just be a man giving a talk, but may it be a, an encounter with the living God such that the word of God is felt to be living and active and doing its work among us. Your church, O oh Lord, is a creature of your word. It has been brought forth by your truth. It is sustained and sanctified by your truth, and it is perfected in the truth. So continue that work in us as we worship over your word in these moments together. May we have a worshipful hearing, an engaged hearing. Worship has not stopped. Worship continues even in this moment as we gather around your word to hear what you would say to us. And we ask that you would speak for all of us, your servants, are listening. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is part three in a little three-part mini-series we're doing through Exodus 7 through 10. We're making our way, as as you know, through the entire book of Exodus, but here this morning we land in part three of a a three-part study on the plagues. The first week, a few weeks ago, we talked about the preview to the plagues in Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Then last week we looked at the pattern. We, we looked at all nine plagues and some general detail and then learned that actually what's happening in the plagues is God is bringing Egypt back to a decreated state. It is, it, he is progressively undoing everything that the creation in Genesis 1 was designed to do for the world and God in his judgment is bringing it back, bringing not order out of chaos but chaos out of order. And so this morning we come finally to the purpose of these plagues. What is God trying to get across in the way he is dealing with the people of Egypt? What is his purpose? What is he trying to communicate? And I think if you've been paying attention as we've been reading through this narrative in some detail the last couple of weeks, you'll see God explicitly explains his purpose over and over and over again. And I want to show you a few of those verses this morning. So let's start in Exodus 7. If you've got your Bible, please look there with me. Exodus chapter 7 and verse 5, God gives a behind-the-scenes peek at exactly why he's doing what he's doing. He says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. And then in verse 17 of chapter 7, he says again something similar. He says, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. The theme continues in chapter 8. If you look at verse 10 of chapter 8, God again says, and he said, tomorrow Moses said, but as it, it is as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Verse 22 of chapter 8, the theme continues. 
But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms or flies shall sit there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, again, continues the theme in verses 14 and 16 where God says, For this time I will send all the plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Verse 16, But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Then chapter 9, verse 29, Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And then finally in chapter 10, verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Think that's what God's purpose is, <laughs> that the earth would know who God is. I mean, I can think of no more important knowledge to have than the knowledge of God. Who is God? Remember, that's what Pharaoh asked in chapter 5. Who's the Lord that I should worship him? Well, you're going to get to know that, Pharaoh. You are going to find out who is the Lord And we are as well. We have been finding out as we've been walking through this passage who the Lord is. Deuteronomy chapter 4 summarizes, you don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 4 summarizes these verses very helpfully in that the purpose of the plagues is to convey the knowledge of God. Deuteronomy 4, Moses writes, Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? That's what's happening. By trials, by signs, by wonders. And by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by the deeds of terror, all of which your Lord did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. That is God's clear, unmistakable purpose for the plagues. That you may know that the Lord is God, and there is no one besides him. Having said that, I think there are three specific aspects of God's character that the plagues bring to the forefront and highlight in great, bold, highlighter, starred, underlined, emphasized, italicized, bolded, however you want to emphasize, with little emojis on both sides. Hey, this is who God is. These are the characteristics of our God that we want you to pay attention to. Those three characteristics are God's punishment of sin, God's patience with sinners, and God's power to save. And those are the three we're going to look at this morning. So who is God? What is the purpose of the plagues? To convey the knowledge of God. Who is God? He's a God who punishes sin. He's a God who's patient with sinners. And he's a God who's powerful to save. First of all, God's punishment of sin. These plagues reveal that God is a God of justice. Because these plagues come as a result of God's judgment on Pharaoh, specifically, and it it, it bleeds out into the people of Egypt, for refusing to obey God's commands. God is a God who punishes sin. Sin is disobedience, in part sin is disobedience, to God's commands. Moses, Pharaoh rather, through Moses, has received a specific command from God. That command was, let my people go. And he refused to do it. And God is punishing him for his refusal to heed his word. 
Pharaoh's sustained refusal to listen and obey God is highlighted throughout these chapters. I'll point you to a few places quickly. Exodus 7, 16, where God says, And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Chapter 8 emphasizes this as well in verse 28. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Then chapter 9, verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right, and my people are in the wrong. And then chapter 10, verse 11, says again, No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for it is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So again and again and again and again, Pharaoh is confronted with his sin. He seems to have some sort of temporary repentance. And then God has to teach him the lesson over and over and over again. But it's very clear from this passage that the reason God is sending the plagues on Egypt is, is because of Pharaoh's refusal to obey God's word. Now, I want to do a little diagnostic of Pharaoh's heart condition here. Because Pharaoh's a pretty complex character, but nonetheless, at the bottom is his insubordination to God. His absolute refusal to acknowledge that the Lord is God and that there is no one besides him because Pharaoh likes to continue to think that he is. That he is the only one God and that there is no other besides him. But God has been at battle with him, trying to convince him through these plagues that he is in fact not God, needs to get off the throne and bow to the real God. I want you to notice three things about his repentance which make him an object of God's punishment and ongoing punishment. First of all, His repentance is circumstantial. Pharaoh's repentance is circumstantial. Pharaoh only goes to God when it's bad. Notice this in chapter 8, verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. That's when Pharaoh goes to God. When frogs are infesting Egypt. But as soon as there was respite, And God relieved the temporal judgment, Pharaoh went back to his anti-God ways. Look at chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. He does the same thing in chapter 9, verse 27. Then Pharaoh said, when the when he, he acknowledges in verse 27 of chapter 9 after the hail comes on the land that he has sinned and that the Lord's in the right and his people are in the wrong. And then he reneges in verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So when the circumstances change, he goes back to being who he was before the circumstances changed. Pharaoh only repents when bad things happen as a result of his evil. He does not repent for the evil itself. He is only concerned about the consequences of his sin and not with the defiance of the God he has sinned against. That is the difference, friends, in true repentance and false repentance. Do not be fooled by repentance. It is not always genuine. It is not always, sadly, it isn't. 
we think, well, this person is pleading with God. This person is repenting of his sin. Hold on. Give it time. Give it time. When God gives temporary relief, Pharaoh uses that as further justification to rebel against God. Maybe some of you in this room are like this. A hard time comes, some tenderness comes on you. There's a profession of faith, maybe. Things get better. And then you go back to living the way things were before they went bad. If that's you, you are Pharaoh. You only serve God when it gets hard. And it's, that reveals that you're serving yourself, not God. You're not serving God when things get hard and you go to God. You're serving God whether things are hard or not. You're going to follow him and love him. Many times in the Bible, people will confess that they have sinned without being truly repentant, especially when they experience difficulty, affliction, sickness, and hardship. Read the parable of the soils. Jesus told us this. Hard times come. People are all of a sudden godly. Then the time goes away, and people aren't. And it's because the thorns choked it out. The test of genuine repentance is the fruit that is produced by the Spirit in our lives. Godly sorrow, which leads to wanting to rid ourselves of sin and an increasing desire for God and his ways. A yielding to the Lord, not a stiff-armed refusal, fist in his face, God, I'm going to live the way I want to live, regardless of what you say. That is not genuine repentance. That is circumstantial repentance, and it's fake. Second, his repentance is superficial. His repentance is superficial. It's not only circumstantial, it's superficial. He says all the right things, doesn't he? He knows all the Bible words. He knows, he knows how to sound like a real deal Christian. You see that in chapter 9, verse 27? Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to him, This time I have sinned. He used, that, he used the S word. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. We got a new convert. Get the baptistry ready. Hold on. Chapter 10, verse 16, he does the same thing after the next plague. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, he called the pastors real fast this time. You see that? He got on the phone and called the pastors real quick. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Look at that. He's not only dealing with his sin against God, he's dealing with it horizontally too. He's seeking relational reconciliation. Ain't real. It ain't real. Why? Because he doesn't confess all of his sins. You see that in 927? This time I have sinned. Oh, really, Pharaoh? Only this time? I think this is plague number seven. I think you've sinned at least six other times, probably a little more than that, but you say you make sure that this time you've sinned. It says, this time I've sinned. And notice, in both cases, he doesn't confess his sins to God. He asks people to confess them. 
You see that? Chapter 9, verse 28. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And then chapter 10, again, verse 17, we see again that he's not confessing his sins to God. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. He's asking human beings to plead for him, to intercede for him, and to forgive his sin. They can't forgive his sin. This is a manifestation of a false conversion. When a person only asks for others to pray for them but never go to God themselves, they're not saved. If they're unwilling to go to God themselves and talk to God about their sin themselves, it's superficial. Well, I'm going to ask this person to pray for me and that person to pray for me. Is it good to get each other to pray for one another? Absolutely. But not as an excuse to not pray yourself. And that's what Pharaoh seems to be doing here. He's still not wanting to reckon with God himself. He's still trying to manipulate other people to try to get the circumstances changed, but where he doesn't have to change. Also, another reason his repentance appears to be superficial is that the magicians are able to duplicate what Moses did, especially in the earlier plague narratives. If you notice chapter 7, verse 13, I won't read it again, but that's where Moses throws the staff down, it becomes a snake, and the Egyptians, by their magical, deceptive, satanic arts, are able to do the exact same thing. And then we read in Exodus chapter 7 how Pharaoh responded to that little trick. Chapter 7, verse 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret hearts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. He finds comfort in his sin by looking at what other people do. He says, well, if other people can do this, God must not be the only God. If these Egyptians, magicians, can produce this miracle, then the one that Moses and Israel, or Moses claims to serve, who's calling the people of Israel out of my control, he must not be the only God either. So, really polytheistic spirituality allows us to do whatever we want to do, right? Which is why our culture hates biblical Christianity, because it's the one voice that says, no, you can't. At least not according to God. There are so many, Pharaoh would think, there are so many religions in the world. How can one be right? I mean, I'm probably okay, And lots of people find a lot of false comfort in that. They don't think that that, that behind all of those false religions is a Satan who exists, who wants them to exactly think that way. So his repentance is superficial. So his repentance is circumstantial. His repentance is superficial. Thirdly, his repentance is conditional. God demanded Pharaoh to do one thing. Release my people, everything, their families, all their goods, all the cattle and livestock, everything. It all goes with them. Let it all go. This was not up for negotiation, but Pharaoh wanted to negotiate it. In in chapter 8, verse 25, he says that they have to stay in Egypt to sacrifice. 
He says, okay, I'll let you go, but you have to stay here. What kind of sense does that make? He said, let my people go into the wilderness. No, we'll negotiate with that. God doesn't really care where you sacrifice. He cares that you sacrifice. You sacrifice here. Moses isn't buying it. And then in in chapter 8, verse 28, Pharaoh tells them that he will let them go into the wilderness, but they must not go, quote, very far. And then later, Pharaoh is willing to let the adults go in chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, but not the kids. Because he assumes, well, parents aren't going to abandon their kids. They're going to come back. See, he's negotiating. And then in the very next episode, in chapter 10, verse 24, he offers to release men, women, and children, but not the livestock. I mean, he is a vicious negotiator. He's not giving them any, I mean, he gives them a little ground, then he takes it back, and then he offers a different thing. This, brothers and sisters, is qualified obedience. And then finally, he just throws Moses out because he can't stand him anymore. And eventually, the hardness of his heart results in anger that seeks to get rid of those around him who seek to tell him the truth. That's what always happens when people are hardening their hearts. Don't tell me the truth. I don't want to hear it. These are all signs of negotiation, and they all signal false repentance. Whenever there is negotiation going on, there is false repentance going on. This is Pharaoh wanting salvation, but wanting it on his own terms and and, and in a way that keeps his own lordship. Brothers and sisters, that salvation doesn't exist. He still wants to be in control, and so he negotiates with God and puts conditions on his obedience. You don't think this happens today? Try evangelizing somebody who's interested in Christ and then talking about specific sins that they need to walk away from. They're not interested anymore, and they'll call you judgmental for it. Or using your pastoral power to manipulate. Or whatever. You wielding the word of God as a weapon, hurting me. It's like, brother, sister, I'm just trying to have you read verses. I don't think I'm saying anything. This is why people can't be saved who want to pick and choose what parts of the word of God they're going to obey. You know, I really like Jesus' compassion for the poor, but his sexual ethic is pretty primitive. If you're going to follow Jesus, you can't pick and choose. His lordship affects your job, your finances, your church attendance, your sex life, your priorities, your values. We must take God on his terms, not ours. Discipleship, friends, is not open for debate. You choose him and receive him or you reject him, but don't pretend that there's some middle ground that's acceptable. Like I can keep the lordship of my life, do the things in private that I want to do as long as I, you know, kind of do the religious stuff from now and then, attend some church and do those sorts of things. No, don't fool yourself. Do not fool yourself and pretend like things are okay between you and God. Take an example here from Pharaoh and realize that there are people whose condition is precarious even at the gates of heaven. They're Repentance is circumstantial, their repentance is superficial, their repentance is conditional, their repentance is fake.
that's, that's hard. That's heavy, isn't it? I mean, that's heavy, heavy stuff, and that's intended to be heavy because the Word of God has a way of searching us out and helping us to see who we really are, and it holds up Pharaoh as this example of what people are like and what we are like apart from God's grace and help. The rest of the sermon is good news, but we've got to hear the bad news before we hear the good news and appreciate the good news. Here's the good news, part one. Number two, God's patience with sinners. I want you to notice something, and I'm sure you've already picked it up, but Pharaoh is given 10 opportunities to repent. 10. God is gracious toward Pharaoh. He is patient toward him, and he is giving him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to change his ways. Notice, did you notice last week how the plagues grew in intensity? He didn't wipe all of it. I mean, imagine if God came and just wiped everybody in Egypt out except Pharaoh and said, that get your attention? I killed everybody but you, and I'm getting ready to kill you if you don't repent. Are you going to? I mean, that would have sent a big message right there, but that's not the way God worked. He just turned the Nile to blood, and then he sent the frogs on the land, and then he upped the ante, started sending gnats and flies and but first of all, he warned him. He went to him at the beginning of chapter 7, and Moses showed up. Staff went to a snake. Magicians did the same thing. Moses' snaff, staff gobbled up their staff. There's the message right there. You're not going to win, Pharaoh. You're not going to win. And yet God still allows his plagues to grow in intensity so that Pharaoh will come to repentance. First he starts with warnings, and then he moves to just misery with the frogs and the gnats and the flies. While they're not life-threatening, they are (laughs) comfort-spoiling, and they produce emotional disgust and physical discomfort, but he's not dead yet. And then when he refuses to repent, plagues 5 through 8 increase in intensity by causing economic loss and physical affliction with livestock being killed and skin ulcers being placed on the people and hail and locusts, damaging their livelihood and disfiguring them physically and catastrophically damaging the environment and wiping out the remaining crops. And then finally, God sends the plague of darkness, which foreshadows the death that is to come and the plagues we will consider over the next several weeks, the final plague with the death of the firstborn. The early plagues affect the body and can be reproduced by Egypt's magicians, but the latter ones affect only Egypt and they can't be reproduced. Now, what I mean by that is that God does not send the plague of death as the first plague. God visits the Nile. God sends the frogs. God sends the insects. God sends the boils. God sends the locusts. God gradually, repeatedly sends messages of warning to Egypt, and those messages themselves entail mercy. You see God's patience in his not visiting a final judgment immediately, but in sending gradual, repeated Temporal judgments designed to reveal that he is the Lord and to bring about repentance. We've seen God's sovereignty revealed in his mercy, even in the way the plagues are consecutive and gradual in their intensity. The plagues increase slowly, and each of, at each of these gradual increases, Egypt is given the opportunity to repent, specifically Pharaoh, and they are given the opportunity to turn back from their rebellion against God. And it gives Pharaoh the opportunity to acknowledge the Lord. And yet over and over and over again, we see him hardening his heart and refusing to do so. 
Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 summarizes what's going on in the plagues concerning the patience of God. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I'm going to allow Charles Spurgeon to preach for a minute. Is that okay? Whenever Spurgeon gets the pulpit, it's always a good thing, so we're going to give him a minute or so to preach to us. He being dead still speaks. Talking about the patience of God as it relates to salvation, Mr. Spurgeon says, I want you to account that the long-suffering of God in sparing you means to you salvation. Why are you here this morning? Surely it is salvation. I met years ago a soldier who had ridden in the charge of Balaclava. He was one of the few that came back when the saddles were emptied and right and left of him. I could not help getting into a corner and saying to him, Dear sir, why do you not think that God has some design of love to you in sparing you when so many fell? Have you given your heart to him? I felt that I had, to, I had a right to say that. Perhaps I speak to some of you who were picked off a wreck years ago. Why was that? I hope that it was that you might be saved. You have had a fever lately and have hardly been out before. You have come hither tonight still weakly, scarcely recovered. Why are you saved from that fever when others were cut down? Surely it must mean salvation. At any rate, the God who was so pitiful as to spare you now says to you, Call upon me! In the day of trouble I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. When Master Bunyan, referring to John Bunyan, was a lad, he was so foolhardy that when an adder, a snake, rose against him, he took it in his hand and plucked the sting out of its mouth, but he was not harmed. It was his turn to stand sentinel at the siege of Nottingham, and he was going forth. Another man offered to take his place. That man was shot, and Master Bunyan thus escaped. We should have had no pilgrim's progress if it had not been for that. Did not God preserve him on purpose that he might be saved? There are special interpositions of divine providence by which God spares ungodly men whom he might have cut down long ago as cumberers on the ground, of the ground. Should we not look upon these as having the intention that the barren tree may be cared for yet another year, if happily it may bring forth fruit? Some of you who are here tonight are wonders to yourselves that you're still in the land of the living. I pray that you account the long-suffering of God to be salvation. See salvation in it. Be encouraged to look to Christ, and looking to him you shall find salvation, for there is life in a look at the crucified one. Account God's long-suffering to be salvation to you, if to no one else. Thank you, Brother Spurgeon. You may be seated. <laughs> we can just pray right and be done. Yeah, when, when Charles Spurgeon preaches, he just, he just wrecks the room, and so that's, we just got to leave the last word with him. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're deceived. Yeah, we'll pray for that spirit of deception to depart from you, Ashley. Um, thank you for that. That's kind. Uh, so that's what we see here with God's patience concerning our sin, that there be salvation at the end of it. Finally, number three, God's power to save. God's power to save. In addition to punishing sin and showing patience towards sinners, God is primarily bringing about salvation through these plagues. We don't need to think that just the point is judgment. No, the point is salvation through judgment. That's what God's doing. He's bringing salvation about through 
judgment. This purpose is stated again and again in every single chapter. Look at me at, look with me at a few verses. Chapter 4, verse 23, where God reveals his purpose is ultimately salvation. This is when God is speaking to Moses in the wilderness, and he says, I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son, which is what we're going to see in a couple of weeks. But God ahead of time says, listen, the purpose is to get you to me, get my people to me, that they may be rescued from slavery and may serve me. Chapter 5, verse 1, afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. It's all about a feast with God. It's all about being let go to serve him out of slavery into sonship. Chapter 7, verse 16, again, God is emphasizing this purpose. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. A few more verses. Chapter 8, verse 1, and the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Chapter 9, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. And then finally in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. This is the point. This is the point. God wants us out of slavery into sonship so that we'll serve him. That's our life, right? That's our life now. As rescued, reconciled, former enemies of God, now made friends and sons and daughters of God, brought into his family through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of sin, we are now in the family of God, set free from slavery to sin, that we might serve God. I want to conclude this sermon by talking about a major theme that shows up, especially through the second half of these narratives, and that is that God makes distinctions between his people and those who aren't his people. The first three plagues affect both the Egyptians and the Israelites, evidently. It seems that the blood in the Nile, the frogs and the gnats, Egypt was, well, the, the Israelites were not spared from the consequences of those sins. But sometimes... God allows his people to suffer alongside the unjust because of their sins. But in later plagues, he makes a distinction. We see this in chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. He says it again in chapter 9, verse 4, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. We see it again in chapter 10 with the hail not falling on the land of Goshen. So the Israelites did not lose their livestock. They were not afflicted with boils. Their crops were not destroyed by hail and locusts. Their sons were not taken, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, by the angel of death, and they did not drown in the depths of the sea, as we'll see in Exodus 14. However, the Egyptians did suffer these things. Their cattle did die. Their bodies were covered with itching sores. Their crops were lost. Their sons died, and their army did drown. Why? Because of who was representing them. 
God makes the distinction with people on the basis of who is representing them. Every human being on the face of the earth is being represented by someone before God. We're either being represented by Adam or we're being represented by Christ. And as 1 Corinthians 15 says, in Adam, all die. But in Christ shall all be made alive. In Adam, we are fallen, we are under judgment, we are under wrath, we are in bondage to the devil, and Pharaoh and Egypt are in Adam. They are being represented in this plague by Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's refusal to obey God is bringing consequences upon the people of Egypt. But make no mistake, all natural men, apart from Jesus Christ, have, a, have their own Pharaoh that they are receiving condemnation for, namely Adam. But the good news, if you think, well, that's not fair. It's not fair. I mean, why should I be treated for what someone else did? Well, here's the good news. How's this salvation sound? In Christ, you are treated by God with what he did. You get his life. You get his death. You get his resurrection. And you inherit the new heavens and the new earth because your older brother owns it. And you get to move into his real estate, which will be the entire universe, by the way. God makes distinctions. And he treats us on the basis of who we're in union with. This is one of the most unpopular parts of the Bible in our day. Not these verses in particular, but this idea that God will not, in the end, treat everyone the same. He will treat everyone, but he will not treat them the same. He makes distinctions based upon who they are in union with. It's all over the Bible. Sheeps and goats. Feasting for some people, weeping and gnashing of teeth for others. Revelation depicts a lake of fire and a new Jerusalem. Think of what the prophet Simeon said. We read these verses at Christmas, and we don't think that Christmas is often a sad time. Christmas is not just for joy. Christmas also communicates judgment. That's what Simeon thought. Luke chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many people in Israel. This child will cause some people to fall, and this child will cause some people to rise. Simeon goes on and says, For a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary, also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Even from the very first day of Jesus' earthly life, it was prophesied that this man would bring division. Jesus himself said, Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? You say, Well, that's what the angel said. I announce good news of great joy, which will be for all people. But this is also true. Jesus said, I didn't come to just bring peace. I came to bring a sword. So yes, the angels announce is true for God's people, for those on whom his favor rests, as the angels say, but not for everybody. Jesus said it in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 and 53. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Those are painful, painful verses to read because we love our families. But that's what Jesus said he's coming to bring division in. 
the closest relationships that you have. Why did God make this distinction? It wasn't because the Israelites had earned it. No. What had Israel done to deserve to be rescued? Nothing. They did nothing. It was because of God's covenant promises that he remembered his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he loved them, and he heard them, and he listened to them, and he saved them for his own glory. He saved them because of his promise that he already made, which was not in any way owing to anything that they had done, either good or evil. Here's the point that God's trying to make. A day is coming when he will say to some, enter into the joy of your master, and to others he will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Where are you this morning? Where are you? Are you on his right hand or are you on his left hand? Maybe you're here this morning and you realize, I think I'm on the wrong side with God. I mean, I think right now if I were to die, he, he would say to me, not enter into the joy of your master because I haven't lived like he's my master. I've lived like I'm my master. He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Listen, I've got this good news for you. C.S. Lewis said, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. You can't go back to where you were and change the beginning, but you can start here and change the ending. That's what salvation is all about. It's about getting a new life, the best life, a new life in Christ which will last forever, which cleanses out our old life, puts it under his blood, forgives us, reconciles us to God, adopts us into his family, All we have to do is do what Pharaoh didn't do. You win. You win. You win. Each of these plagues was a sign of a future judgment. If you go to Revelation 9, which I don't have time to and I'm not going to turn us there right now, you can see that one of the plagues that that will fall upon the earth in the end will be locusts. Go to Revelation 16 the second and third bowl of God's judgment, we see the seas and rivers turn to blood. In the fifth bowl of judgment, we see darkness on the face of the earth. In the sixth bowl, we see frogs. In the seventh bowl, we see lightning, thunder, earthquake, and great hailstones. Brothers and sisters, this isn't the last time God's going to do this on the earth. It's going to come at the end of the age when Christ returns. Now he's giving us, especially those of you here, who have yet, children, young people, who have yet to bow the knee to Christ. Giving you one more chance this morning, don't harden your heart, say to God, you win. You win. You win. I love you. You have been so patient with me. I have resisted you for years. I've hardened my heart. Thank you for never walking away. You never walked away from me when you should have. Listen, You can choose now to be humble, or you can choose at the end to be humiliated. Your choice. I would rather be humble now and confess my sins to God and receive his forgiveness than be humiliated at the end of the age. Say to God, you win. I need you. I've sinned against you. I want to follow you. I want to, so run to him this morning, bow to him, humble yourself. Say, I surrender, and God will say, come in. I receive you because of Jesus, not because of what you've done, but because I love you. 
and I will love you forever. May that be all of our testimony. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for a word this morning which is both sobering and encouraging. It's sobering in the sense that it brings us face-to-face with the reality of your judgment. It brings us face-to-face with the reality of sin. But God, it reminds us of how patient you are and how long-suffering you are and how desirous of, to save that you are. May anyone in this room who is yet to come to the Lord Jesus Christ find themselves compelled to do so this morning. Not because of anything I've said, but because what your word and spirit has been doing in their lives. May they find themselves saying, even right now, Lord, you win. I surrender. I'm yours. Receive me for Christ's sake. And we thank you that all those who have need of you will never be cast out. Because all the fitness you desire and require is to feel our need for you. And this you give us. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for giving us salvation in your son. We don't deserve it. We tremble with joy that we have it because we have been treated with contra-conditional mercy and grace by our God. We all deserve to be in hell right now, but we are not. And that is because you have loved us before the foundation of the world and you've called us into your kingdom through your beloved son in whose name we pray and in whose name we rise and worship. Amen. Let's stand together.